Today on Government Matters, two members of Congress have an idea to help the government get ahead of cyber threats and respond to attacks. We'll talk to them about their new bill. Then, the Department of Labor is still discovering how widespread unemployment fraud actually was, nearly two years after the pandemic payments went out. The new estimates from the government's oversight agency. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. When cyber criminals attack federal infrastructure, there might not be enough cyber professionals to respond, given the government's tech talent shortage. A National Digital Reserve Corps would fill that gap. That's the essence of a new bipartisan bill introduced by Representatives Tony Gonzalez and Robin Kelly. Representatives, uh, welcome to you both. Nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so Congressman Gonzalez, I want to start with you before we talk about the legislation. Can you give us an idea of your professional background and your interest in this topic? Yes, I, I spent 20 years in the Navy as a Navy cryptologist with a top secret SCI clearance. I've essentially done this type of work my entire adult life. I retired as a master chief and then immediately ran for office. I'm in my second term. It's been absolutely amazing to, uh, to, to be a member of Congress. My district stretches from San Antonio to El Paso, over 800 miles of the southern border. As you can imagine, a lot of my time and energy gets spent on, on that. Uh, Uvalde is also in my district, so having to, having to deal with that. But this is a topic that's very, very near and dear to me, and to have uh, you know, to be able to work with someone like uh, Representative uh, Kelly, I think, is, is critical. It, it goes to show that while there's all this division in Congress, when you find things that make sense and, and uh, you can come together and you can get things over the finish line. She is a much more seasoned legislator than I am, uh, but I'm excited how, how we've uh, began to work on this and, and many other things. Well, Congresswoman Kelly, let's talk about the legislation. What are the major issues that the core would address? Would it only be major cyber attacks? That's our main issue, but uh, I've been working on this or this idea actually before Rep Gonzalez came. I worked with Rep Will Hurd, who he replaced, and we were always concerned that um, the government, the federal government, didn't have enough people. Um, that we could retain or even attract to work around cybersecurity issues, which affect, you know, financial could financial markets or our national security or just other aspects of government. So we wanted to build a workforce that we can count on, much like the military does, which Rep. Gonzalez is very familiar with. And how, about how large of a core do you envision, Representative Kelly? Well, I don't, we didn't put a number on it. We um, are trying to attract people to serve for three years. And then much like reservists, they, uh, once a year, they would serve for um, 30 months. We hope to attract uh, a lot of people. And Representative Gonzalez, would it also be for defense agencies or is this just for the civilian agencies? No, I think what it what essentially does is it's a mechanism that goes in case of emergency break glass. And I, I'll give you an example. In, in, in Texas, a little over a year ago, we had this winter storm, Yuri, that came through, and everybody was without power and water for a week. And it didn't matter the color of your skin. It didn't matter if you lived in the city or you lived in the country, how much money you had in your bank account. Everybody was without power. 
So I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, Representative Kelly and I, you, we, we look forward and you go, wait a second here, the next storm that may come may be a cyber storm. And we've seen, it, it, we're already there. You know, you've seen it with the Colonial Pipeline, you've seen it with, uh, with different school districts and healthcare facilities, but what happens when there's a targeted effort and everything goes out? Part of this legislation dives into who is going to help turn the power back on. And you know, uh, cyber cybersecurity in, in general had traditionally been a, a national security defense area, but that's changed. I mean, cyber is in absolutely everything we do. Uh, I argue that most companies are IT companies first, and then they do other stuff, right? Then they sell widgets or, or whatnot. So essentially, what the digital core does, it, it taps into an existing expertise, uh, and, and it allows them to serve in a federal capacity. I mean, the last thing I'll say is not everybody wants to join the Marine Corps and do a bunch of push-ups. Not everybody wants to stop smoking marijuana or do these other things. And guess what? I don't need you to. What I need you to do is when when uh, the power gets turned off, grab your keyboard and, and uh, you know, come help us turn the power back on. I think this is an important area for the country. You know, there's very many people are patriotic. Not everybody uh, necessarily needs to serve in, in uniform, per se. So, Representative Kelly, tell us about how reservists would be activated. Who would make that decision? Would each agency have specific reservists assigned to them? Yes, that's what our plan is, that uh, they would be dispersed in different agencies because, as Rep. Gonzalez said, it's, it's throughout. It's not just one thing or another, so that they would be assigned um, to different agencies, and they would be able to keep their... Uh, credentialing and um, certifications and those kind of things so that they can keep up themselves with what's going on with government for the three years that they've signed up. And would this be primarily uh, federal employees, private sector employees, a combination of both? How does that work? No, we hope that this is a way of attracting private sector employees. Again, it's hard for us because we don't pay the same amount of money as uh, a private sector um, uh, that private sector does. We lose people to private sector all the time, not just cybersecurity. So these would, I imagine, be mostly private sector, and this is their way of giving back. This is their way of serving their country. And Representative Gonzalez, this would be for a three-year period. Uh, each reservist would have to serve a minimum of one month per year. Can you talk us through the thinking on that? Yeah, the, the the big aspect of it is is how do you how do you better uh, streamline uh, industry with government, academia, and create this ecosystem? Uh, we already have the talent. The talent is in our companies. How do we tap into that talent and allow them to serve? This is essentially about service and, and do it in a in a very streamlined process. Also, you know, uh, what are they going to get from it? They're going to get. Uh, uh, they're going to get clearances, they're going to get access to training, they're going to get build their networks as far as uh, the people that they're, they're operating with. So it's really a win-win situation. And once again, when we do come across that emergency, we're going to be ready because the reality is people will show up and they will fill the gaps, but it needs to be a little bit more streamlined. And that's what this, this piece of legislation does is we're going to be ready when that, when that attack does occur. All right, well, we're gonna take a quick pause here. Representative Kelly, I understand you cannot stay with us. Your time is tight, but I wanna thank you for uh, making the time for us. We'll continue with uh, Representative Gonzalez. Thank you so much. Thank Have you. a good day. Coming next, more on the Digital Reserve Corps proposal with members of Congress. Stay with us.
I'm back with U.S. Representative Tony Gonzalez discussing his proposal to create a National Digital Reserve Corps. Representative, we talked about the, um, the minimum that people would serve in the Corps being one month per year. Is there an upper limit as to how many days they could serve? Or is it a matter of, you know what, if you get activated, you serve until the job's done, similar to the military? You know, it's 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 still kind of in flux, and, and I mentioned that to go. Uh, the hardest part is getting meaningful legislation, getting traction on it. And we 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 introduced uh, Robin Kelly and I introduced this piece of legislation last Congress, and uh, it got passed in the House uh, through the NDA process. There was over 800 amendments, and this uh, this piece of legislation, out of all the 800, had the second most amount of co-sponsors. Uh, bipartisan in nature so it, it's something that made sense but I think it's important uh, especially legislating that you don't legislate to the point to where you start creating restrictions it's almost you build it out and and uh, and, and you get it to a point where it needs to be a as a practitioner you know as having spent 20 years as a cryptologist oftentimes you would have legislation that had good intentions that that uh, had second and third order effects we won't we don't want to do this with this legislation or anything else so i think as far as some of the parameters and we, we put some things on there but there's a lot of things that can still remain flexible so i wonder what the the uh kind of the reluctance was on the part of the senate and i understand the white house has uh, a bit of reservations about it can you tell me what what uh, was the root of that yeah, this is the frustrating part is even even the most sensible piece of legislation, it's just difficult. It's just very difficult to get signed and passed into law. And uh, and, and honestly, last last Congress, I spent so much time and energy on the House side and that was very successful when it went over to, to the Senate. You know, that's a different ballgame. And the White House, uh, it's it's my understanding that some of the reservations they have with, with and it shouldn't surprise anyone is who is going to control this element, you know, uh, what agency is going to do that? This piece of legislation uh, designates uh, GSA as the overall uh, 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 kind of a lead, but uh, the White House has some other ideas. So I think this is an area maybe we can work through and trying to find some some middle ground on how to get it over the finish line. And can you tell us about how much this would cost on a yearly basis? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on how how large the uh, the uh, force is going to be. And, and that, that dictates things as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a pay cost as well. You, you can pay someone up to a certain amount of money. I mean, all these things are, are kind of in flux. And, and the reality is, is, is how do you get people to know about it and then ultimately start initiating it too? And it has to be something that adds on to a company, adds on to an individual. Once again, gives them a way to serve in a manner that isn't through you know, one of our traditional uh, military services. But I think uh, the, the, the concept is, is sound, and, uh, and once it gets going, I think that the, the possibilities are endless, and the need is already there. We're seeing these intrusions every single day. Uh, we have to get ahead of this problem. We can't wait until there's a major national outage for us to respond. Something like the National Digital Reserve Corps would get us prepared ahead of it. And you talked about all the benefits that uh, an individual could reap with all the, you know, the ability to serve their country and very valuable uh, job experience. What about on the side of businesses? They would have to let go of those people that I'm sure they need. Um, is there anything to incentivize them? Would they be getting anything out of it? 
You know, when, when I first started, uh, when we first started crafting this legislation, one of, uh, legislation, one of the things that I did was sit down with industry leaders, various different in industry leaders, and kind of get their take on it. Because that's the point that we did not want to make is to go, hey, we're going to be, you know, taking your expertise. It's more of, of a collaboration. And, and right now there's all these silos you know, uh, and with industry and government. And you're, we're essentially trying to break that down and make it to where an ecosystem where government and industry are collaborating on a daily basis. Uh, because the reality is, is when there is a major outage, a major incident that occurs, you're not alone, right? Nor should you be alone. Uh, so I think that's that's an incentive. Uh, the other part, the large part of it, beyond collaboration with the company, with the corporations, is training. Is help provide, uh, you know, continuous training and maybe uh, additional training. So you know, let's say somebody, uh, you know, allows uh, some of their employees to go off and and do something for a few months, whatever. When they come back, they're they're a more trained uh, skill set than when they left. All right. Well, Representative Tony Gonzalez, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, and we'll. We'll be watching to see what happens with this bill. All right, thank you much. Coming up next, unemployment insurance fraud from the pandemic totals more than $60 billion. That's just one of the findings of a new Government Accountability Office report and what agencies can do about it. Stay with us. When the pandemic hit in 2020, millions of Americans found themselves out of work. Congress responded with new unemployment insurance benefits. But a new report finds a substantial amount of the money paid out went to fraudsters. Seto Bagdoyan is a director at the Government Accountability Office. Seto, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So how much money was paid out and how much of those payments were actually fraudulent? Yes, that is a complex question uh, with a complex answer. There are various estimates uh, out there. Uh, in fact, the Controller General uh, yesterday testified before the House Ways and Means Committee about this very subject. And at that hearing, there was also the Inspector General uh, of the Department of Labor, and he announced a new figure uh, of $191 billion uh, in improper payments, uh, which include fraud. And uh, we also have a baseline estimate of over $60 billion in fraudulent payments. So uh, there, there are competing numbers out there. Uh, we believe our baseline number is a starting point to uh, measure the fraud in uh, unemployment insurance programs. And what are some of the ways that people were getting those fraudulent payments? How did they do it? Yes, sure. Um, well, we're talking about uh, a lot of different fraud schemes. Uh, many were centered around uh, identity theft, for example, there was one individual who stole an identity uh, and uh, I believe a, a related social security number and then proceeded to file claims in dozens of states uh, um, calculating hundreds of thousands of dollars in improper uh, benefits. So that is probably the primary reason uh, that um, or the primary method that fraudsters use to uh, obtain benefits. And what do we know about who was exploiting the system? Who, who were these fraudsters? Were they just um, people that were criminals anyway? Was it organized crime? 
Yes. Once the vast amounts of money were made available for unemployment insurance, uh, that amount of money, of course, attracted uh, uh, solo practitioners uh, as well as uh, organized criminal enterprises, both domestic and overseas. So it was basically an onslaught uh, to get a piece of the pie. So there was an overseas element as well. Yes, that's our understanding. We haven't looked at that in any depth, uh, but we have read other reporting to that effect. And uh, yes, uh, organized crime syndicates from uh, Russia, China, uh, Nigeria apparently have been prominent uh, in that regard. So the speed at which the payments needed to go out during the pandemic obviously didn't help. So what were some of the changes made to help get payments out faster that actually ended up making things easier for fraudsters? Great question. Uh, primarily uh, switching off or relaxing controls uh, such as they were at the time uh, that uh, were part of the claims process to verify um, applicants' um, identity, establish eligibility, calculate amounts of the benefits, and then also determine the duration of those benefits. So it's primarily a controls issue. Uh, if you relax those controls, inevitably you're courting trouble. And it wasn't entirely a federal issue because states also weren't prepared. What were some of the issues that they faced? That's right, yes. The states, uh, this is uh, unemployment insurance is a federal state partnership. The insurance part of it is executed at the state level. And as you indicated, the states were as unprepared as the Department of Labor was. The onslaught of claims in the tens of millions, uh, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, basically overwhelmed their systems. A lot of these states operate with antiquated IT uh, infrastructures that some date back, back into the 1970s and using COBOL programming language. So uh, it's basically a recipe for disaster, perfect storm. You pick your cliche, uh, it really applies in this case. And GAO, GAO had recommended to the Department of Labor some anti-fraud best practices years before the pandemic. What were some of those best practices? Well, we recommended best practices uh, in our October report, October 2021, uh, to implement elements of GAO's fraud risk framework, which is a compilation of leading practices to more effectively manage fraud risk. Um, that is a legislative requirement dating back to uh, 2016 with the Office of Management and Budget providing guidance to that effect. But when we did our work for the uh, October 2021 report, we, we found that labor had not yet implemented any of the fundamentals uh, of that framework. So we made uh, recommendations to that effect. That's going on about 16 months ago now. And labor is, is moving in the right direction. They're taking some steps but um, they, they probably need to pick up the pace and uh, implement those recommendations more rapidly to be better prepared the next time. And are there any other um, recommendations that are in front of the Department of Labor that you think would address fraud? Yes, in our most recent report from December of last year that was released uh, earlier um, in, in, or late January rather, 
uh, we made the additional recommendation that once labor uh, responded to our October 2021 recommendations, they should build on the information they gather from, from that uh, set of recommendations and craft and implement, it, implement rather uh, an anti-fraud strategy, which will be essentially their roadmap to better manage fraud risks in the future. All right. Well, Seto, we appreciate you guys looking into this and, and uh, appreciate you being on the program. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And you can listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on all major listening platforms. You can also find every podcast episode on our website at govmatters.tv podcast. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis.